Thank you, worship team. I do invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 4 as we continue in the sermon series, Direction for Life, through uh, the first four chapters of the book of Proverbs. I believe that all people have one thing in common. Deep down inside, people want to be happy. Cry. This is even enshrined in our United States Declaration of Independence that was adopted by the Second Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and independent, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, all people, I believe, desire happiness, but as we can see from the violence on the streets of many of our nation's cities and within the halls of political power, that people right now cannot seem to agree on what brings the greatest potential for the pursuit of happiness. All long to have it. And this longing is not something that's bad. In fact, I believe it's actually good. But the problem comes many times in the form of evil. When people try to find happiness in ways that displeases and dishonors God. Goodness, on the other hand, consists in, per consists in pursuing happiness in ways that please and honor our God. Yes, as believers, it is true in this world that we might be called upon to do the right things at the expense of our own freedom or our own ultimate happiness. As I mentioned in our announcements today about that funeral in northwestern Minnesota in Becker County that affected in one fell swoop 30 people because they were wiping their eyes, even though they all were wearing masks, and they were blowing their noses, and then they hugged, and, and they shook hands, and they even held hands together and prayed. Uh, in one fell swoop, 30 were affected, and five are still hospital right now, hospitalized right now. But it's more personal than that to me, because my godparents in my life were Edward and Lillian Janke from Cloquet, Minnesota, and they were uh, devout Christians. Missouri Synod Lutherans, and Edward died last Sunday morning at 90 years of age. And the visitation for Edward was scheduled at their church this last Thursday evening, 5 to 7, and the funeral was going to be Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock. I couldn't go to the funeral because of a doctor's appointment, but Cindy and I were preparing at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday to go to the visitation in Cloquet when we received word that it had all been called off because my 85-year-old godmother, Lillian, was just diagnosed with COVID-19. See, in this world in which we live, God has established it in such a way that doing good and doing the right thing is what is going to lead to peace of mind. It's what will lead to the greater joy and happiness and ultimately to God's glory. See, God has created this world and its moral laws in such a way that the more we choose the right thing to do, the more we will honor God and the happier we will be and frankly, the better off our lives will turn out. Now, obviously, this does not mean that there is no self-denial or discipline uh, on our part. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35 say, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. See, self-denial is the means, Jesus says, to saving 
our lives. We don't get to live our lives any way we want. We must come to Jesus and fully surrender our lives to him because he's the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can get to the Father. No one gets to go to heaven apart from Jesus. Well, as Christians, we are now to seek happiness from a different source than the world does. Our world right now thinks that happiness is creating heaven on earth. That's what communism believes. That's what socialism believes. But we, no matter what government we find ourselves under, have to pursue happiness in a different way than the world does. We need to look to the model, our model, in this pursuit, and our model happens to be Jesus. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us fixing our eyes whom in this race of life who do we fix our eyes on jesus the pioneer he's the beginning point of this and the perfecter the one who completes our faith for the joy set before him what did he do the ultimate self-denial. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, in our study so far of Proverbs chapters 1 through 4, in a series called Direction for Life, uh, we don't get to live our life, you know, direction for life. We are looking today at Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 in a sermon that we've called, Whatever It Takes. And this text here is a call to pursue wisdom with everything that we have. This text reveals that wisdom in life and for life doesn't come to the most fortunate. It doesn't come to the most intelligent. It doesn't come even to the most educated. It shows up in the lives of the most determined. Verses 7 and 8 teach us that wisdom comes to those who are the most determined to find it. See, the problem, though, is that in our culture, and even in some Christian circles, wisdom is often viewed as someone else's responsibility to impart to us. It's the teacher's job. It's the professor's responsibility. It's the pastor's calling. It's the trainer or the instructor's or the parents or the grandparents' role. It's the church's task. And part of that, there's truth in some of that. But this thinking in people's minds that it's up to others and that we don't have a significant role to play in our lives to pursue wisdom is to miss the biblical mark. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 7 through 12, and we've already looked at this in the past, but it's worth looking at again. This is Solomon's beginning point of his kingship. It says in verse 7, that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give to you. Solomon answered, God, you have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire, your heart's desire, And you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor the death of your enemies. And since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I've made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given to you. 
1 Kings 3, verses 7 through 12 is a parallel passage of this, but verse 12 concludes a little differently. It says, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who generously gives to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, our context there is about enduring trials, and we should pray in those moments for wisdom. We should pray asking God to help us, and we've been doing that a lot as a church family here at Mission Covenant, asking God to give us wisdom, how we should react and how we should operate as a church during this COVID-19 pandemic. And the verse here says, God will give it generously to those who ask without finding fault. Even if people are struggling in their times of trial and, and, and trying to make sense of things, God is not going to hold back his wisdom. He will give it to those who ask for it, those who pray for it. So remember, these people were pursuing it. They were determined to find wisdom. Now, back to our text in Proverbs chapter 4, and I want to start in verse 1. It says, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Up to this point, it's always been my son. All of a sudden now, it's multiple children, multiple sons, and this inspired personification of wisdom that's talked about here, listen to this wisdom that's being passed on to you, children. Ultimately, what it's saying is, listen to what God is saying to you in this inspired text. Pay attention and gain understanding. If you should, if you, I give you sound learning. Do not forsake my teaching, for I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Grab hold of it. Take it to heart. Verse 5, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Go ahead, spend your life acquiring this. It is, after all, an acquisition. This is something you should devote your life to. It's something you should pursue. Verse 6, do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Don't let go of her. Don't let go of wisdom, because she will take care of you in life. And then verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Get it. Go after it. And this notion that it is strictly other people's responsibility to impart wisdom to us is frankly, I believe, part of the entitlement mentality that many Americans possess. And I'm going to be real honest with you here. Because of our need as followers of Jesus Christ, to pursue wisdom, and because of our culture's entitlement mentality that someone else has to impart this to us, and because of a lot of indoctrinal, you know, cultural indoctrination that goes on in our culture, and a lot of it happens at institutions of higher learning, as a pastor, I have actually begun to encourage, encourage parents and encourage young people that if they do not have a specific career path in mind, if they do not have a specific major that they want to pursue, if they're not sure that college is for them, I tell them, do not go. And this comes from family, where my wife and I are both college graduates, where all of our children are, have college degrees. And I tell them, if you really do want to go to college, if at all possible, 
try to go to a Christian college. Because our son who went to a Christian school had a much different experience than my wife and I or our other three daughters did who went to secular state-run schools. I tell students instead, go to a technical school, a technical college, go into the military, go into the workforce where there's a little less indoctrination that's going on. Now, I got to switch glasses here because the print in this book is so fine. But I've mentioned in my last newsletter article a book that I read this summer called The Breakdown of Higher Education by John Ellis. And reading here from a chapter about the wretched state of the campuses, here's what it says. In this chapter, I have argued that the campuses are now miserable caricatures of what they once were. On this subject, Dennis Prager quotes Steve Pinker, a professor at Harvard, and a liberal atheist, by the way, saying that American universities are becoming laughingstocks of intolerance. Aside from a few disciplines like the natural sciences, mathematics, business, etc., Prager goes on to emphasize how destructive this all is. Here's what he says. If you send your children to a university, you are endangering both their mind and their character. This is from an atheist. There is a real chance they will be more intolerant and foolish after college than they were when they entered college. When you attend an American university, you are taught to have contempt for America and its founders, to prefer socialism to capitalism, to divide human beings by race and ethnicity. You are taught to shut down those who differ with you, to not debate them, and you are taught to place feelings over reason, which is guarantee, a guaranteed route to eventual evil. That's from an atheist that's saying that to us. You know, one of our, our daughters, our third daughter, back in 2012, she graduated from college, and she took a class with 30-plus students called Understanding Human Differences. And our daughter's an incredible young lady. Uh, she was a fabulous student, a wonderful teacher and coach. Uh, she's a fabulous wife and mother, a devout church member, incredible Christian. And I don't, I'm not saying that because I'm her father. Uh, many of you have told us those things about her wisdom and maturity and all those kinds of things. But... Uh, she took this class on understanding human uh, differences, and one class setting, they sat 30-plus students in a circle, and they took out this erotic female doll and passed it around to everybody, and they were supposed to look at it, and then they were going to pass it to the next person and then talk about what they had experienced. Well, you've got one goofball guy in the class who's, you know, Googling and, uh, and drooling over and all this kind of stuff and acting like a nuthead. Well, my daughter, when she got it, she simply passed it to the next person. Well, who do you suppose the professor of the class zeroes in on after 30-plus students have all had this experience? Uh, the, the guy who acted like a goofball and our daughter. And the first person he goes after is our daughter, thinking somehow she must have some kind of sexual hang-ups or whatever. And he asks her why she did what she did, and she says, well, I don't think this is the place to be having this kind of discussion. I think this is the kind of discussion that should happen between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. He cut her right off because that is not the kind of discussion he wanted to be having when you're talking about all the sexual fluidity that go on within the culture. Well, that's the state of college education right now, especially when you're taking humanities courses. And get this, you're paying a lot of money for this kind of indoctrination. Again, in the breakdown of higher education by John Ellis, reading from chapter one here, in a chapter uh, 
about what the riots tell us that are occurring on many university campuses. And he quotes here, a number of similar incidents have reinforced that conclusion that campus closed-mindedness originates with college faculty who no longer behave like academics. They were clearly the driving force in the denunciation of Amy Wax, a distinguished University of Pennsylvania law professor, and her University of San Diego colleague, Larry Alexander, who published an article entitled, Paying the Price for the Breakdown of Our Country's Burgoyce Culture. I believe that's French for the middle class, the breakdown of that in America. And it was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer on August 9th, 2017. And Wax and Alexander re recommended a return to some traditional values for groups that were currently in trouble. Now, she got in all kinds of trouble for publishing this. In fact, would have lost her job had she not been tenured. And, and listen to what she and this other fellow law school professor said. Here's what they said. If you want to join the middle class in America, no matter what class, ethnicity, whatever you're part of, Here's what she said I really think people need to do. Get married before you have children and strive to stay married for their sake. Get the education you need for gainful employment. Work hard and avoid idleness. Go the extra mile for your employer or client. Be a patriot, ready to serve the country. Be neighborly, civic-minded, and charitable. Avoid coarse language in public. Be respectful of authority. Eschew substance abuse and crime. That's what she got in trouble for. That's what's going on in our campuses here in the United States of America. Folks, true wisdom comes from God. It doesn't come from some teacher. It doesn't come from some uh, professor, some school, or even any books that you can read. The Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says nearly the same thing. If you want to get wisdom, hold God in high regard. Fear God and then pursue wisdom with all of your might. Verse 7 here in chapter 4, in its wooden Hebrew language, says the beginning of wisdom is acquired wisdom, meaning something you didn't previously possess, but you went after it to get it. And then it says, in all of your acquisitions, everything you acquire in life, acquire understanding or meaning wisdom. You know, we acquire all kinds of things. We acquire careers, we acquire educations, we acquire houses and retirement plans and investment portfolios and hobbies and toys and tools, etc. But in the midst of all this, it's saying give an all-out effort to acquire what's really important in life, and that is wisdom. Now, it's no great mystery in this church that my favorite hobby is to bow hunt for mature trophy class whitetail deer. I have my priorities straight. My relationship with God comes first. My marriage is second. My children and, and grandchildren are next. My job is fourth. But if there's a spare minute in my life, any time during the year, I try to devote it to uh, pursuing mature whitetail deer, to getting better in any way I can. And they happen to be the most difficult big game animal on the North American planet, continent, to harvest with a bow and an arrow. 
Their sense of sight is remarkable. Their eyes are on the side of their head and they can move their heads all over the place and they can detect movement. And they have a configuration of rods and cones in their eyes, which means they're colorblind, but they can see in low light conditions 10 times better than what we can see. So in other words, if it's a full moon night, they walk around like it's daylight compared to what we have. That's why they can run through the woods in the dark like nothing to them. They also have an incredible sense of smell. They can smell 100 times better than we can smell. Truthfully, if my old factories work like theirs, because especially big bucks have a longer nasal passage, so they have more epithelium in it, if I could smell like they did, I really couldn't even be preaching to you right now, because my old factories would be overwhelmed by smelling all of you, especially on this warm, muggy morning that we're going to. They also have seven-inch ears on both sides of their head that they can turn, basically, to receive any information that's coming their way. And do you know that the white-tailed deer is the only big game animal on the North American continent that has actually increased in number since the European immigrants came to this land? Every other big game animal is less, many of them much less than they were, but there's more white-tailed deer than there ever has been. Now, I have harvested 12 trophy-class whitetails in the last 15 years, three that went into the record book, five that missed the record book by three-quarters of an inch or less. I've had some that missed by a quarter of an inch. I have also helped my son get one in the book, and I've helped my brother get three in the book out of my stands or places I recommended he hunt or off of my properties uh, where he harvested those, and he's missed out on five or so more. I've also had opportunities on 20 other big bucks in that same span of time where something went wrong, uh, and some were larger than any bucks I've ever harvested. Now, I hunt in five different counties in Wisconsin and five different counties in the state of Illinois. And anything I can do to get an edge or to learn something new, I try to do. For instance, in this last year, a new bow site came out called the EZV bow site. Because sometimes on big bucks, you don't have time to pull a rangefinder up. They're like a ghost. They show up and they disappear. One buck I passed at a three and a half years of age, never got a picture, never saw that buck again until I shot him five years later at eight and a half years of age. And there he was, he showed up. So you don't always get to put up a rangefinder to know what the range is. But these sites are actually illegal in any bow hunting competitions, 3D competitions, because basically it's a built-in rangefinder. It's what tanks use uh, in warfare because they size up the target based upon the target, and it's mathematically and computer calculated to tell you when the kill zone is in that area, that's where you aim. And so it's a fast way to do that. I also have learned recently from one just this last week, and I shouldn't be giving all these secrets away, but I'm going to do it for free today. But, but um, I learned this last week from Don Kiske, one of the best bow hunters in the United States. He's from Iowa. He sets his ground blinds up in standing corn because deer, especially big bucks, they never fear danger coming from the corn. And so he sets them up in there because they feel safe next to standing corn. And uh, I've shot two deer in Illinois, and the first thing they do, they don't run in the woods. They run into the standing corn. And I also learned this week from a young man who's a very good hunter. And again, I shouldn't be giving these secrets away, but I'm just going to pass them on to you. But in this region, uh, many times when bucks start scraping, uh, they do it along tote roads, and they're doing that kind of in the middle of October toward late part of October. And where he wants a buck to stop, instead of grunt stopping them or whistling, or one time I even had to yell because a buck is chasing a doe and get him to stop, he skidded four feet 
with straight legs, left skid marks in the leaves. He takes a little sapling like size of your three, four feet long, sticks it right in the middle of the tote road, puts a little scent on it, so that buck comes along, hasn't seen that stick before, stops right there, right where he wants to shoot it. I'm constantly trying to learn new things to up my odds in what I'm doing. Well, we should be pursuing God and his wisdom like that with all of our might. And this is what the Bible teaches. The beginning point is the fear of the Lord, full, complete surrender to God. And sadly, many people have this notion that they're off the hook because someone else is, to, you know, is, is responsible to impart wisdom to them. Wisdom is awarded to those who are most determined to find it. In fact, Proverbs 4, 7, and 8 teaches us that wisdom is the principal thing in life. Look at the beginning of verse 8 there. Cherish her, and she will exalt her. You know, during this pandemic, all of this social distancing, all of this isolation that people have been going through, there has become a sense among people for human touch. And my wife happened to be gone in the latter part of July uh, for nearly a week, uh, helping our oldest daughter out as she was settling into her apartment in a northern suburb of the Twin Cities. Also, our second daughter had a need for some uh, child care because their child care uh, workers were gone for a number of days. So she went over there for four days. So she was basically gone for a week. And I missed her. It's pretty lonely now when you're isolated from people all over the place. I missed her because I cherished her. And I cherish her. And this is the way we are to regard wisdom. We're to cherish wisdom like that. And you know, in all of these verses in chapter four here, the word for wisdom that keeps getting repeated over and over in the Hebrew language is the word chokmah. And it's to get wisdom because wisdom is the principal thing. The word beginning in verse seven also means the chief or first thing, the chief thing as in most important. And this wisdom will become your most valuable asset in life. She will lift you up and she will bring you honor. By the way, you want to know the Hebrew word for honor? You'll never forget it after today. The Hebrew word for honor is the word COVID. That's what the word is. But it'll give you honor. Wisdom will always prescribe the best results and the best means to use for its attainment. Wisdom is truly the principal thing. And wisdom will bring you life. It'll bring a beauty into your life. It will show you the secret to truly being alive. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. See, wisdom brings spiritual beauty into our lives. It's why there are numerous people in my life that I like to spend time with because they're so wise and they're so good and incredible things come out of their mouths every time I'm with them and talk with them. So I want to learn from them. And interestingly, every single one of these people I've ever known in my life tend to be tremendously humble, and they also are very willing to learn themselves. And one of these people in my life right now that's like that is Pastor Zach Crosby, who just underwent kidney transplant this last Friday uh, at Mayo in Rochester, Minnesota. And I want you to hear the text that I sent to him just before his surgery. Pastor Zach, your church family is praying for you today. We love you and your delightful family, and are trusting God for good results in your surgery. Cindy and I are so thankful you are in our lives. We have learned so much from you. Thanks for being faithful to the Lord. 
and being the pastor and man God has called you to be. We love you. See, when these verses in Proverbs 4 refer to honor, it means the character in our lives that wisdom produces. Wisdom, God's word says, is the secret to really being in life. And when you find it, it says embrace it. Literally in the Hebrew, it means to clasp it. Hold on to it with all of your might. And here in verses 7 and 8, it's inviting us to want it. Do you want wisdom? Wisdom? It says, do you really want it? Then it says, come and get it. Come and get it. These four chapters here in Proverbs teach us that it is more costly in life to not have wisdom. This is why chapter 4 in particular teaches us not to forsake wisdom in our lives. It says basically, never give up the pursuit of wisdom. Do absolutely everything you can to obtain it. Whatever sacrifices you have to make to get it, do it. And do it so you can keep it. Why? Because it's more costly in life to not have it. If you don't have it, you're going to make foolish decisions in life. You're going to make costly decisions in life. You're going to make one after another that is going to end up leading you into one difficulty after another and one disaster after another. And you know, there's hardly a month that goes by for me in my life and as a pastor where I don't hear about some Christian somewhere making a bad, unethical or immoral decision that turns out to be very costly for, to them personally and to those around them. So whatever it takes in your life, pursue wisdom. And you know, we've already been able to see in this series the value that wisdom has. You know, that, that people's hearts can learn to trust God. That people can learn to be obedient to the Word of God. That people can understand the value of developing true friendships and even being open to critique from others. And people can be patient in learning through adversity. And wise people also are involved in true service to others, especially to those who are needy. And all of these things will be practiced reflectively within a community of faith, a group of people who are like-minded in seeking the same wisdom. And the result of all this is people will actually know God better. They will begin to know themselves better. They will know their spouse and their children and their families better. Not to mention that they'll know their fellow Christians better, as well as will know better and understand better the times and the seasons of life that they find themselves living in. See, all of our decisions and all of our choices in life will become wiser if we spend our time pursuing wisdom. Dr. Timothy Keller paraphrases verse 7 here this way. He says, here is how you get wisdom. Just get it. Wisdom comes not to the most fortunate, not to the most intelligent, but to those who are most determined to find it. I ask you today, how determined are you to get wisdom? Really, how determined? Let's pray. God, our Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to look through these first four chapters this summer, uh, talking about direction for life, and God, today, specifically, the pursuit of wisdom. I pray, God, that that would truly be our heart's desire, and that in this process, you would protect us, God, from ourselves, from making poor decisions, unwise decisions that not only hurt ourselves, but, God, that will hurt those around us and our loved ones. And 
will even hurt your church. God, we know that you have put all of this instruction here for our benefit and for our well-being. And God, may this desire for wisdom truly be one of the marks of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.